been having a great and wonderful day. If you're with us for the first time, this is Finance Friday, Get Free Friday, where we talk all things finance, health, wealth, and wisdom. Right now we're in a financial series, but we will be um, probably later in the season getting back to our Get Healthy segments. Um, and we've got some great books lined up for that as well. But for tonight, we are looking at The Whiteness of Wealth by Dorothy A. Brown, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans, and How We Can Fix It. Then we're going to move into Tiffany Aliche, The Budget Nista's book, Get Good With Money, or 10 Simple Steps to Becoming Financially Whole. So I'm going to dive right into The Whiteness of Wealth. And tonight's subject coming from the book is talking about the black middle class. And the author is reflecting on the black middle class, particularly in Atlanta, Georgia. And we'll be finishing up the introduction tonight. And then again, we're going to hop over to Tiffany Alice's book, Get Good With Money, where she talks about getting your mindset right in order to um, get good with money. So we'll be looking at uh, three principles, I believe, tonight from her book. So I'm going to hop right to it. I can think of no better place to exemplify the struggle of the black middle class than Atlanta, Georgia. My home since 2007, the author writes, nicknamed the black Mecca of the South and known as the city too busy to hate. Atlanta is full of contradictions when it comes to racial equality for its black middle class. Take Allen Ivan, Ivan Allen Jr., the city's white mayor from 1962 to 1970, who had previously run for governor on a segregationist platform. During Allen's first term as mayor, a black graduate of Morehouse College moved into an all-white neighborhood in the southwest part of the city. Mayor Allen responded by signing legislation ordering barricades to be constructed across two of the city's streets in order to separate white from black neighborhoods. Dubbed the Berlin Wall by protesters, the road remained blocked until a judge ruled the barriers unconstitutional the following year. Less than two years later, Allen would co-sponsor an integrated dinner celebrating the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s Nobel Peace Prize. Atlanta is home to outstanding historically black colleges and universities, including Morehouse and a significant black middle class with economic and political power. Yet the racism built into our tax policies still disadvantages blacks in a city that has been run by black mayors since 1974. Take Chris, a behavioral health clinician in Fulton County, who was months away from completing her doctorate at a for-profit university with an almost 80% black enrollment, when it abruptly shut down, eliminating the eight years of study she put in while working full-time and caring for her daughter. Or Ursula McCandless, a human resources manager at Cox Enterprises, who was financially supporting her family members who could not overcome the obstacles of the past and the present. Many of the people you meet in this book are shouldering the same responsibility. Even the most high achieving black professionals face setbacks different from those encountered by their white peers. Just consider John, a consultant and strategic planner with an advanced degree 
from one of the world's most competitive universities. He was forced to short sell his first family home in a black neighborhood when he sought better public education for his children by moving to a street where he where his is the only black family. While Atlanta has a unique history, the struggle of the black middle class here is representative of national trends. Because of tax policy decisions made long ago, black married couples start off behind their white peers. When they purchase homes, they do not receive the home equity boost that their white peers get. Black Americans have more student loan debt to pay off. They work in lower paying jobs than their qualifications would suggest, and they support extended family in ways foreign to most of their white peers. From one generation to the next, black wealth diminishes, evaporates, and is stolen by systemic racism. Meanwhile, white families continue to receive and accumulate wealth, scooping up tax cuts along the way. The precarious position of so many black families becomes especially visible during moments of crisis. Nancy Flake Johnson, president of the Urban League of Greater Atlanta, said in an interview with NPR that the Great Recession that began in 2007 was devastating for all black Americans, even collegiate graduates. We've lost a third of the black middle class, she said, citing a recent Urban League study. Nationwide, a report from the Pew Research shows that the black-white racial wealth gap for middle-income families increased both during and after the crisis. And in May 2020, months into the COVID-19 pandemic, with black Americans disproportionately impacted by poor health outcomes, less than half of black adults had a job. We can expect things will only get worse. The way out demands work from whites, blacks, and the American public as a whole. While Americans, white Americans have to come to terms with their privilege-based benefits, and black Americans have to accept how much the debt is stacked against us and take defensive actions. I want to say that part again. White Americans have to come to terms with their privilege-based benefits and black Americans have to accept how much the deck is stacked against us and take defensive actions. Only then can we hold our elected leaders accountable, forcing them to reckon with historical discrimination and identify tax policy decisions that every year take money out of black taxpayers' hands and put it into white taxpayers' pockets. With this information out in the open, the American public will be better equipped to demand tax reform that is racially just and equitable, not just one. In the last chapter of this book, I will be proposing some policies that will help us achieve this goal. These solutions and the rest are aimed at reducing the wealth gap between black and white Americans in particular. Americans of indigenous, Latinx, and Asian descent face wealth gaps of their own, and these too deserve study. But I've chosen to focus on the challenges facing Black Americans for a few reasons. First, Black-White wealth gap is larger than the Latinx white and Asian American white wealth gaps. We do not have enough information to determine the depth of the Native American white wealth gap. Second, because the IRS doesn't publish tax statistics by race, we have to look elsewhere for proxies. 
The most relevant, relevant data that can be extracted from other sources contains black and white families. It's simply where most of the information is published. Moreover, the focus on solutions designed to specifically reduce the black-white gap should also assist other groups. Racism in America is far more complicated than many think, and there is no one-size-fits-all approach for black Americans that will necessarily benefit all people of color. I would encourage others to extend my work and consider the unique history of other racial and ethnic groups and their structural inequality issues. Most important, creating opportunities to examine, subvert, and undo the racism in our tax laws is how I will keep my promise to Jerome Culp and to my parents to do more with the opportunities they gave me. At its core, this book shows that the role tax policy plays in perpetuating the black-white wealth gap represents an ongoing failure to provide an equal opportunity to black Americans that neither the left nor the right truly understands. The conservatives are correct about one thing. The black-white wealth gap can be decreased if people make different decisions, but it is the decision-making by white Americans that is largely responsible for black outcomes today. The solution, behavioral changes at every level. Black Americans need to be defensive players in an anti-black system unless or until it changes. Choosing strategies in their education, career, and family lives that compensate for these oppressive practices and policies. Meanwhile, white Americans need to recognize these anti-black practices and policies and actively work against them even when doing so might harm their own pocketbook. And all voters, black and white, need to be aware of the special interests, bad actors, and anti-black forces that shape our tax system. It will take sustained, systemic change from the federal to the individual level to upend the status quo. Next Friday, uh, when we come back, if everything goes well, we'll be looking at Chapter one, Married While Black. Now, this is also going to tie into our reading that we do on Tuesdays um, entitled Black Women and Black Love, which also digs into the historic and systemic ways that black women have been disadvantaged in terms of marriage and love opportunities. You can join us for that on Tuesday. All right, let's get back to. Get Good With Money by Tiffany Aliche. And she's talking about financial wholeness and the mindset that we need to have as we go forth and continue our process of growth and change with our finances. So we're going to talk about these three principles tonight. And then I'm going to open up. And if you'd like to come on and join me in conversation about any of these topics, feel free to do so. I will be leaving a question for our anchor audience. So you can go to the section that's entitled community and you can feel free to leave a response and I will definitely read it. Find a reason for gratitude. We're talking about money mindset. The writer says, when I was about 14 years old, I had the achiest knees. They hurt so much that I could barely walk upstairs. The school stairwells were the worst, especially when I was in a rush to get to class. My mom took my complaint seriously and took me to the doctor. 
I was sure there was something terribly wrong with me, but he declared I was having growing pains and that they would subside once my leg growth caught up with the rest of me. He said I'd probably have a few months of limping around, which was a bummer, even if finding out I wasn't dying was a relief. But then some good came of that pain because I was given special permission to ride the staff-only elevator. When no one was looking, I gave rides to my friends because um, who doesn't want to ride in a forbidden elevator? Are you sensing the moral of this little story? These growing pains were a signal that my body was changing, literally going from one level to the next. Elevator privileges were a nice side perk, but the growth was what I would soon be truly grateful for. I want you to keep this in mind as you start to make your way through these financial wholeness components up ahead, because I'm not going to lie. You might feel a little bit of discomfort as you do, and that's okay. That discomfort is a clear sign of your growth, and that's something to be grateful for. I think sometimes things are difficult because they're meant to teach you lasting lessons. Easy doesn't teach us much. If you'll recall from the introduction, I was once in a pretty dark financial and emotional place. In rapid succession, I had lost my job, my savings, the use of my condo, my retirement, and my boyfriend. I really felt like I had nothing left to hold on to. That was something, my 1999 Toyota Camry, but it wasn't much. I just remembered thinking, how do you build from a place of nothing? But another part of me just knew there had to be something better. This hopeful part of me helped me to see all I could be grateful for. I had to squint to see it, but I made myself look for the tiniest little block of hope to build on. I started sarcastically with statements like, I'm grateful for this raggedy suitcase to hold all my clothes. Yay! Even through the sarcasm, I felt a lifting in my spirit. I looked for more. I had something like 50 email contacts at the time. I thought, we've got some email addresses. This means opportunity. Why don't you email those people to see if they'd hire you? One thing led to another, and as I explained, I got a contract to teach financial classes at my local United Way. And then when I got paid out on that contract, I was able to get out of my childhood home and into a room in a brownstone. I couldn't afford a full apartment, but I could rent a room. It was in that room that I would build the budget Nista. Know that learning new things, navigating money differently, learning how to budget, save, and invest better, these things don't happen overnight. It might feel hard at first, but the hard is preparing you for the better. You are about to level up, so you should expect some growing pains. To help you get your mindset right, Find a bright spot or your hidden opportunity, your equivalent of a raggedy suitcase or 50 emails, and write them down. Create a list of things that you are grateful for and add to it as you can. What you put on this list doesn't have to be anything big or even financial related. You could simply say, I'm glad to be alive today. Next, live for joy. Now, this is something that the Budget Nisa and I have in common because I believe in living for joy. I believe in uh, justice and joy. I believe in making sure that I'm doing something that stokes or something that ignites my joy every single day. So if it's something as simple as taking a walk, having a cup of coffee, 
um, writing in my journal, whatever it is that strokes that area of happiness and joy for you, I encourage you to make sure that you're doing something um, practical every single day that gives you joy. The writer says, when I was 14, my legs grew. When I was 21, my heart expanded. I had just graduated from college and I went to visit Nigeria for the first time. It was my grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary, so our whole family gathered to celebrate them. When I got there, it, tr it quickly struck me that none of my cousins seemed to rely on the stuff that we were all convinced we just had to have in the United States. They had phones, but they weren't on them all day long, and anyone, no, no one hardly watched TV. At first, I wondered what they did all day. Then I found out. They played games. They read, they talked to each other, they laughed a lot, they visited with each other. It sounds cliche, but my family in Nigeria spent quality time together. They were a happy and connected group and held fast to the things that mattered most. It wasn't hard to see that I didn't have that kind of gratitude despite all of my material possessions. I had all the things, but not the same kind of joy. It was then that I decided I was going to change my approach to life to one service and gratefulness. One of the exercises I practice is to begin and end the day with grateful thoughts. First thing in the morning and last thing at night, I mentally list at least three things I'm grateful for. 20 years later, that trip still inspires me to live a life of gratitude and joy. Money might make your life easier on many levels and might make you superficially more successful, but beyond a certain point, it's not actually making you happier. Even if you are in a tough spot right now and you know there's a lot of work to be done to get you to the path of financial wholeness, know that there's still laughter to be had. There's still love and hugs and sunshine. There's still joy. So live for joy. Finally, surround yourself with positivity and accountability. We've talked about your family baggage around money as well as the ways that society can contribute to your attitude toward it. But the people you spend the most time around likely have a heavy influence on you and your habits too. I'm talking about those in your circle, your peeps, your crew, your posse, your squad. Are they lifting or lowering your vibe? This is something worth thinking about as you prepare to start the steps to financial wholeness. Here's why this is important. When you have positive, supportive people surrounding you, you are more likely to be successful. It's not like you can't do it on your own, but it is tough trying to improve in isolation. And negative people, gossips, doubters, jealous types, will not only help your, not help your cause, but they will actively bring you down. Oftentimes, our own insecurity is a reflection of their lack of belief in themselves. Sometimes a person's negativity is simply a projection of their own fears and your goals might be something that they've never dared to aspire to for themselves. So your ambitions might actually confuse them. But remember, their negativity is not about you. It's about them. The key to stepping away from anyone who doesn't encourage or support you is to simply stop giving them space emotionally and physically. As tough as it is to admit, some of these unsupportive people might be family members, so it might be hard to avoid them, but get comfortable with the idea that they don't have to be involved with or know about everything you do. Remember, 
Your goals are about you trying to make yourself better. To really give yourself a fair shot at succeeding, you might just need to turn your full focus to the work. Then later, you can share your story about how you've overcome. I've learned that some of my life improvement plans should be shared on a need-to-know basis, and not everyone needs to know. Um, We talk about this uh, quite a bit in coaching, and that is the concept of levels of access, um, that everybody does not need to have access to every single thing and every single detail of your life, and that based on uh, where they are in your life, as she said, some things are on a need-to-know basis if they're not directly involved with it or if they're not directly contributing to it or supportive of it. I realize this is really tough to do, especially if you may now have to keep your goals from people whose opinions mean a lot to you. But if friends or family find your goals strange, it can sap the energy that you need in order to reach for them. Since our goal in this book is to work toward financial wholeness, it's appropriate to try to add people to your network who are not only positive, but also ambitious in working toward elevating their own financial position. This could mean they are working on their credit, they're trying to increase their net worth, they're creating a debt repayment plan, they're looking for an income producing um, job. Do you have people like this in your life? If you do, you'll want to lean into their positivity and give it back at the same time. I call this kind of elevation and exchange accountability partnering. Through brainstorming, networking, and encouragement, you help one another stay on track. Looking for an accountability partner? You can join a virtual community. Think of us as mindset mentors and offer the same same support in return. So take a moment. Think about the people in your life who influence you. These could be people you reach out to for insight when it comes to decisions or just those who have some power over choices you make, maybe because you admire them or because they share their opinion of how you should operate your affairs. In any case, you want to consider the type of energy coming your way from outside forces. Are you getting enough positive, encouraging support? If not, Consider replacing these influences with people who will help lift you up toward your dreams. Be proactive when looking for the right kind of accountability partners. Don't be afraid to connect online. Lastly, remember the power within you. Ultimately, a lot of your money mindset comes from remembering how truly powerful you are. You have everything you need. You have the tools and ability and the right to pursue the abundance that was meant for you. Remember that your current financial position and circumstance aren't the end. They're just the beginning. Prioritize faith over fear and believe that you can get to where you want to be. We'll be at your side helping you there. Now it is time to work on your financial wholeness. Now, next week. We will be jumping directly into chapter two, which is 10% whole budget building. And if you have not ever built a budget, this will be a great time to tune in. If you have young people and you want to get them started on looking at building a budget and learning how to build a budget, I encourage you to invite them on as well. 
All right. So that is our reading portion for tonight. If you would like to join me for conversation, we have got about 20, 25 good minutes here. Um, And so if you want to come on and have a conversation, we started out talking about the black middle class, um, the whiteness of wealth by Dorothy A. Brown. And I want to go back to one thing that she said um, before I bring people on. She said that black Americans need to be defensive players in an anti-black system unless or until it changes, that they have to begin choosing strategies in their education, career, and family lives that compensate for oppressive practices and policies. Something to think about. And I believe I see Pastor Ben joining us tonight. Good evening. Good evening. Pastor Ben, you're breaking up some. Pastor Ben, we can't hear you. He might have to come out and come back in. Let's see. All right, let's see if we can get him to come back in um, and have this conversation with us. So if you're just joining us, we just finished up the whiteness of wealth as well as get good with money. And Tiffany Aliche was giving us some pointers about the mindset that we need to have. And she talked about living your life with joy, making sure that you have um, and are expressing gratitude and also surrounding yourselves with positive people and accountability. In the whiteness of wealth, we looked at the um, black middle class and how the black middle class has shrunk um, in several decades. And the fact that we have policies that are still um, hurting black middle class and the fact that we need to be proactive. So let's see if we can bring Pastor Ben back in and let's see if his uh, video is working now. Hello? Yes. Good evening. Everything looks good Great. now. Okay. Uh, what I was saying is what you had read in the last part mm-hmm. about, um, about being a uh, defensive mm-hmm. against um, I guess basically the system, the system, well, anti-black system, mm-hmm. which the original definition of racism is anti-Negro. Mm-hmm. So that's what that's basically saying, a racist system. Um, and this thing, it affects, while it affects us more than anybody else, it also affects poor whites but their eyes are not open to that fact. Right. Because they've been lulled into this idea that, oh, you got, you know, you got white, you know, your white power, you got white privilege, which they do. But as far as, uh, if you're a poor white person, mm-hmm. forget it. Yeah, they, um, I want to say, 
it's all about the social capital for them. So even though they are, even though they are being affected, they're still not being as affected as bad as black people in general, but they have been convinced that their social capital makes up for the fact that they're not doing as well as the rest of their own group. Right. So it becomes this idea of, well, at least I'm not black. I'm poor, but at least I'm not black. And so that's why we see all of these organizations that are forming around white identity. Because even if I don't have the material things that I need to have, I can take pride (laughs) in the fact that at least I'm not black. Which doesn't make sense. Which at at some point, you would think that they would kind of realize that you two are being played. Right. Yeah. But but that that goes to the, what is the pineal gland, I guess? Pineal gland. You Mm -hmm. can't see the truth. You can't (laughs) see the truth. You can't see that you're being played because you don't have that, that sensitive spot that makes you realize that you're being played. I mean, that could definitely be part of it, not discerning. Right, not discerning. But you would think after several decades that you would kind of wake up and realize that you're being played. Okay. Because at one point, I mean, at one point, at the beginning of this nation, um, the white indentured servants were in partnership with the freed blacks. Yes. Yeah. And they both, right? They both rebelled against the system together because they realized that that the system itself was not beneficial to either one of them. And after Bacon's rebellion, they began to create these laws that were specifically designed to separate that Union to separate that agreement between the two. So, yeah. Pastor Ben may have to come back in on a. He may have to come back in on a different. Pastor Ben, you're you are spooling and I can't see or hear you. Hello. Uh Oh, all right. He's going to have to come back in if possible. Um, But yeah, so you had the Bacon's rebellion and in that after that rebellion, they realized, hey, these two groups of people. Right. These two groups of people are. Getting along too well that they're able to go against the system. So we've got to put some kind of barrier between the two. And I'm talking, Pastor Ben, about Bacon's Rebellion and and the uh, inception of breaking up this unity that was formed at the beginning of this nation with the white indentured and the blacks. Once they realized, you know, that they were fighting together together. 
They had to do something to put an end to that. I'm going to just have to remove you, Pastor Ben, because it keeps on spooling. So it's okay. Um, you can probably just do comments down in the, in the, in the chat. So this is something that, uh, Pastor Ben brought up a very good point that it's not just African-Americans who are being disadvantaged by these systems. It is everybody. They're just not being disadvantaged as much as African-Americans are, but the reality is they are being disadvantaged as well. And until these systems change, black people have to be on the defensive. We have to be intentional and we have to be proactive about building wealth, which is why we're looking at the second book, Get Good With Money by Tiffany Aliche. This has been another episode of Daring Dialogues and I've been your host tonight, Shante Charles. I do want to thank you all for your time and attention. I hope that you will uh, share this broadcast out. Also, I want to let you know on next Saturday, I will be hosting um, a workshop to help people deal with uh, reflective practices, conflict resolution, learning how to sit with yourself, learning how to sit with your thoughts. Um, If you are a Patreon member, you do get a discount on that registration, so please Um, Feel free to email me at reachshante at gmail.com if you are planning to sign up because I do need to get a head count um, for the activities that we'll be doing. But let me know if you plan to register. Registration closes November 5th, but there is a discounted registration for Patreon members. If you are not a member of Patreon, you can join tonight at patreon.com forward slash daring dialogues, all one word. And you can um, start your registration in Patreon and then I will give you the information as far as the discounted registration for November 6th. Again, we're going to be looking at reflective practices, conflict resolution, learning how to go within, sit with your thoughts, learning how to calm yourself. We're going to be looking at some stress relief practices as well. It's going to be a very practical workshop. It's dressed down um, and we're just going to get into it. And hopefully you will come away from that workshop with some spiritual tools and some practical tools for your life. Also, we're heading into November and November is my birthday month. And what I'm asking for those of you who want to celebrate with me, Um, to shop my shop. So if you want to uh, celebrate me for the month of November, you can go to my merch shop and um, you can pick out something on my merch shop. And on my birthday, you can take a picture and tag me with a happy birthday um, of you with something from my shop. There's all kinds of things there. There's shirts, there's mugs, there's hats, there's hoodies, There's stickers, (laughs) Um, there's mugs. So there's something there um, at every different price point. You do not have to uh, spend an arm and a leg to show your support. But whatever it is you get, if you would tag me on it and just say happy birthday. So I know that you have been there and you are showing your support um, for my birthday 
for the month of November. I celebrate all month, but my birthday is officially on November 27th. So again, I want to thank you all for your time and attention. Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness. So continue to go out and be light. Take care, everyone, and have a wonderful weekend, and God bless.